Welcome to Podcast at SDA. I'm David Bridell, and this is our season devoted to exploring our plays in performance at USC's School of Dramatic Arts 2016-2017. First of all, special thanks to Phil Allen and the team at the Sound and VoiceOver Studio here at SDA. On November the 3rd, our school opens Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, playing in the Bing Theater through November 7th. And today's guest, I'm delighted to say, is our very own Professor Carla Delegata. Professor Delegata is an assistant professor of critical studies in the School of Dramatic Arts here at USC. She's published essays in collected editions from Oxford University Press and Palgrave Macmillan, and in journals such as Shakespeare Studies and Bulletin of the Comediantes. She's also published reviews in Shakespeare Bulletin, Shakespeare Theatre Journal, and 16th Century Journal. She worked as a scholar for the Theatre for Chicago Shakespeare Theatre and Victory Gardens Theatre, and has spoken at conferences all around the world, including Miami, Indianapolis, LA, El Paso, Madrid, and Belfast. With an emphasis on the performance of culture, her dissertation was entitled Shakespeare and Latinidad, the Staging of Intracultural Theater, and it won the J. Leeds Barrel Dissertation Prize from the Shakespeare Association of America. Professor Delegata's research areas also include early modern drama and theater history, the history of Shakespearean performance, Latino theater, Latina theater, Spanish Golden Age theater, adaptation theory, gender and sexuality studies, post-colonial feminism, and critical race theory. That's a lot of stuff, Carla. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, So we're here to talk about Romeo and Juliet. Um, I'm going to start with a a broad question, an overarching question, and see what you feel about the play as a whole, what you think is is remarkable about it or unusual, and uh, give us a sense of your general response and an overview of R&J. An overview? I... I know that the lovers get a great deal of attention, and rightfully so, even though they're in very few scenes together, Hmm. and that this has become the love story across continents that we all know about. But at the same time, there's a great emphasis on violence. And when Juliet says, if they see thee, they will murder thee, there's a great amount of danger that goes on between these two households that is now played up quite often in performance in which... The households are from different cultures or nations or linguistic backgrounds. Hmm. So the play gives us a sense of that type of youthful love that can be erratic and and when people make quick choices and so forth. But when I watch this play now, I tend to think of mentorship and and not Hmm. having parental guidance and not having someone to turn to. And there are a number of people who have said that Shakespearean tragedies occur when, when the main character or characters don't have someone to talk to. And when I watch the young people, Romeo and Juliet, lose their friends or their guidance, you know, and their counselors, that's when they become lost and things tend to go awry. So there's a, there's a, there are many layers that can be played up and emphasized in Romeo and Juliet, but they're all right there, and they're all right there from that opening prologue, which tells you how it's going to end. Yeah. So we watch this story and we read this story not for how will it turn out, but for how are we going to tell this story and how will it come across and how does it develop? And I think that's an important thing that we look to Romeo and Juliet for. It's mm. not for how will it end, it's how is it going to be told? Mm. And, and that's a different type of, of reason that we go to the theater. Specifically uh, with regard to Romeo and Juliet and uh, figures of guidance or mentoring figures, mm. Couldn't one argue that Friar Lawrence fits that role? And if you did take that view, then could you also argue that he messes it up or gets it wrong? Absolutely. He and the nurse are the real parents in in this play. And although he has a wonderful, he has an extensive monologue when he talks to Romeo about 
why aren't you happy? You were banished and not killed. You killed mm-hmm. Tybalt, but he would have killed you. He's saying all those right things, and he's being encouraging, but it's ultimately his plan that does do the lovers in and, and causes the grief in the end, and he takes responsibility for that. It's also when the nurse turns away from Juliet and suggests that she might just be happier. It would be better if she married Paris, that Juliet feels so alone and goes to the friar to hatch the plan. So both of them serve as wonderful mentors to Romeo and Juliet, but then something goes a bit awry, mm. and that's what leads them to ultimately the, their death. So it makes me wonder a little bit more about the um, hierarchical structures of the play, mm-hmm. which effectively, as you're suggesting, get either ignored or lost as these young lovers you know, um, catapult towards their doom. And Friar Lawrence and the nurse are versions of a hierarchy, but they're obviously not the sort of top of the pile. Those would be the family members themselves, yes, the Capulets and the Montagues. Can you talk to us a little bit about whether Shakespeare explains why these two families are in conflict and uh, what it is that we're supposed to understand about that? Oh, that's, that's a great question because it's so clear from the opening, two households both alike in dignity in fair Verona where we lay our scene. Mm. And and it's clear that these households are alike in status and they're from the same place. But it's that fair Verona that works somewhat as an oxymoron, that Verona, the streets are not fair. Hmm. And it's the aristocrats who are playing games by fighting in the street and the common people who were there somewhat to keep the peace. So we don't get a difference. We don't have that subtext. We don't have a background as to why why that what the ancient grudge is about and shakespeare pulls this story from a whole history um, of narrative and and poetic and um sources so which in in those cases there were <clears throat> there are a number of different sources that he pulls from and there's never quite an explanation of mm. why these two households are fighting mm. so I think that's one of the things that gives us that intrigue. What what is the ancient grudge about, and why are the young people playing, playing out this this terror on the street hmm. that they don't really think will actually result in anything bad? Like when when Tybalt challenges Romeo, um, it, it's not necessarily a to the death. It was part of the code duello for a gentleman. You know, if someone challenges you, then you can pull out your sword and your rapier. Um, which was a newer weapon at the time, and some would enable the aristocratic class to have fights on the street. Mm-hmm. And Queen Elizabeth had um, passed some legislation limiting the size of a rapier, as if that would help um, in keeping the peace. But we don't actually get an answer as mm-hmm. to what the grudge is between them, and we don't get a cultural difference and so forth. You mentioned earlier that in some productions of the play... Uh, perhaps you've seen them, I, I'm not sure, that you, uh, directors might choose to identify the Capulets and the Montagues as either ethnically different or um, culturally different. Does that do a disservice to what Shakespeare originally intended, or mm-hmm. how can that help to illuminate the play for us? Well, I think that it it does give us that background mm-hmm. that, that a lot of us are looking for, and, and it could be argued either way that it does a disservice. The most famous adaptation or Romeo and Juliet production that we see like that is West Side Story, Mm -hmm. of course, which gives us a cultural and linguistic difference between the two households, but who are still of the same class, Mm -hmm. if you will, young urban youth. But 
I think that what it does for us now is that it allows us to understand that hatred and that danger uh, that, that might be more difficult for our culture to understand. And we see this across the world. There are productions in Finland where Juliet is Finnish and Romeo is Swedish and they have this whole divide and across the world and where she's Israeli and he's Palestinian. And, and sometimes it can be kind of a layered on type of um, concept to, to put onto the play. But when it brings out this understanding of violence mm. and, and a bit of the erotic nature of someone who has been deemed to be not appropriate so for mm. marriage. Uh, and there's one other thing that this this subject sort of draws me to ask you about, and it, and it is to do with violence, as you first mentioned. Um, whether or not we understand why it's there, it's there, and it is in a, in a way is the sort of inciting factor behind the whole story. Um, does Shakespeare frequently uh, associate violent conflict with um, aristocratic families and um, ruling structures, even in even in his non-history plays? Well, this play follows... This was the first real tragedy that he writes um, after Titus, mm-hmm. which is a Senecan model with a lot of horror and gruesome mm-hmm. to it. And, and what we have, this is about the same time as A Midsummer Night's Dream, which the School of Dramatic Arts just put on, and you there even as well, you have the more noble family um, or the married people who begin the play in which that marriage began with conquering and, and so forth. Sure. And so that too can be played up in performance as to that troubled marriage between the two leading figures and how does that play out um, with the couples who want to get married and so forth. So, no, this, 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 this tragedy sits somewhere between maybe before... Shakespeare had had experienced personal tragedy. I, I'm wary of getting biographical when it comes to Shakespeare, but his father hadn't died yet, his son hadn't died yet, and this is a newer tragedy that's kind of bordering on where he'll go. We don't we don't law this as one of the most fully developed tragedies. Right. But we do see in Hamlet, we see the monarchy fighting with each other, mm-hmm. and it's somewhat it's paralleling what's happening to Denmark in general. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to um, some bad mentorship. We see that later in King Lear. Um, we see this in we a number of other. Do. Yes, we do. In a number of other plays where there's a problem, even in the Scottish play, where um, a desire for power is overcoming the people who should just be happy with their their status and so forth. So I think it's a constant struggle. But one of the things that Shakespeare was doing was using Italy as a mirror or as an analog to what was going on in England at the time. And you had a change from where you had a growing middle class and you had all sorts of upset and there were some risings going on in the street Mm. with apprentices and so forth where you had people who were fighting in the street. And this is something that could be associated with Italy. And there were a lot of connotations to to Spain and Italy um, that the British had at the time. Mm. And this is what it, where it's playing out. Um, and also when Mercutio somewhat taunts Tybalt about his style of fighting, and, mm. and it's the invasion of the Italian swordmasters, that this was somewhat of a sexy and dangerous neighbor to the south, and mm. a Catholic one as well. So there was a lot of reason to kind of bring that violence to that particular setting. Okay. So you mentioned the prologue, um, and 
you've also obviously identified this piece as a tragedy. And in some respects, the, the entire phrase, star-crossed lovers, seems to indicate the sort of magnetic pull of fate mm -hmm. um, and the inexorable uh, journey of the two protagonists towards their end. And yet, I've also heard it argued that uh, Romeo is an impetuous adolescent who just happens to make a number of mistakes, and that up until the death of Mercutio, the play is, could be seen even as a comedy. It, it is a comedy. Right. I mean, this is hysterical. These you know, two people aren't supposed to be together. We have the, in the first scene, we have two young men telling a whole bunch of jokes that young men might tell on the yeah. street when they're alone together. And, and this is funny. I mean, even even when he goes to the grave, and we we know as the audience that Juliet really isn't dead, mm -hmm. and he thinks she is dead, and he just didn't get the message. Well, this is played up by Lerman in the Lerman film excellently when he just doesn't get the UPS package and right. the sticker flies off the, <laughs> the Winnebago or whatever that is. But he didn't get the message. He comes in. He thinks she's dead. What's going to happen? I mean, this is the perfect setup for a joke. But then something goes terribly awry. It is the death of Mercutio that changes things, and Romeo killing Tybalt as mm. a response. Mm -hmm. So, I agree. There, there's a good deal of comedy or the way that this is set up, which I think actually lends itself more to having a greater tragedy, that it's a surprise where this is going. This is Two Gentlemen of Verona with a dark ending. Right. So, and, and here we are back in Verona, and here's where that didn't turn out well. Oh, and, that's and so yeah. Shakespeare plays a lot on the same themes throughout his career. And, and later at the end of his career, when he co-writes um, The Two Noble Kinsmen, then we see The Two Gentlemen of Verona played not at all as a comedy. And it's basically the same story with a very different ending. Hmm. And so one of the things that I think Shakespeare does as an artist is go back to these same ideas and retell them and figure out different ways of... So not like a choose-your-own-adventure, but no. if I do it this way, then we're going to end up over here. Right. And that's definitely one of the things I think we're seeing. I know you warn us against the dangers of of applying a sort of autobiographical lens to anything, mm -hmm. and, and I'm about to do it, and I feel, you know, <laughs> that it's the wrong decision. But anyway, something tells me, you know, the play is so um, vivid and full of life, and I, perhaps that's one of the reasons that it's so uh, perennially popular. It just you know, screams off the page with its sense of um, effervescence. Do you think that uh, do you think that Shakespeare's early comedies, which include Midsummer that you mentioned, Taming the Shrew, and others, um, uh, Two Gents, were um, were kind of part of the driving force behind this play? And then he discovered while he was writing it that it was going to veer off in this darker direction. I just wonder if it was one of the first times that he tasted personal a personal uh, version of tragedy? I, I, that is a good question. He had had such success with the Henry VI plays, mm -hmm. and they were they were basically like our blockbusters are today. There was violence, and there was, you know... Right. Game of Thrones. Of, for, right, yeah. right, right. Who's going to die, and blood, and you know things like that on stage. That this this was a new venture for him. Mm. And, and we see Titus as an incredibly dark play, mm -hmm. and so this is somewhat emerging out of it. And with the multiple source texts that he had, all which bring in different elements, one from, you know, um, making, putting the, the story in Verona to even going all the way back to Ovid to Metamorphoses yeah. with Pyramus and Thisbe, yeah. that this is really one of the, the master adaptations for Shakespeare hmm. himself to kind of pull from a number of different sources and be creative. But yes, I, I agree with you. I, I wonder what caused this story to end this way. And 
the biggest thing that I can really think of, as I said, is is working through the same idea mm-hmm. of um, of love in Verona, if you will, and it taking a, a dark turn. Mm-hmm. But I I do think that that violence has something to do with it, and honestly, xenophobia. I mean, even though it was, we always think of England versus Spain at the time, the Catholic neighbors to the south, Italy was just right behind them. Mm. And young British men would go to Italy to, you know, complete their classical learning. But at the same time, Italy was known for having prostitution, mm-hmm. for or having women on stage, which, you know, which was um, like prostitution, you know, being and that type of thing. And it was sensualized and exoticized and, and also troublesome, mm. especially because... Um, the city-states of what we now call Italy were were known for perhaps being more cosmopolitan, and, and that was the direction that, that London was going in for sure. So there was this idea huh. of if it happens there, will it happen here? And and certainly some bias in that. That's fascinating. So, uh, so the potential for the entire metropolis to sort of turn sensual and end up, you know, dead on each other's tombs. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> um, by the way, you mentioned Pyramus and Thisbe. I just—it's uh, a—it's a minor aside, but I just was—I'm so um, thrilled by the connection between Midsummer and Romeo and Juliet in that regard. And I think I noticed as well that in the actual text of Midsummer, when this very comical play within a play, Pyramus and Thisbe, is brought up, I think it's referred to as the most excellent tragedy of, and I believe that that's. Maybe in some editions, that's what Romeo and Juliet is seriously called, yes. the most excellent tragedies. Yes. And we also have tragical histories and, oh, right. and, and things like that as well. Right. And our our contemporary ideas or desire to put things in specific genres and they're neatly squared away there um, doesn't quite apply to mm. to Shakespeare and how people organize those things at the time. And and one of the greatest places we can look for that is the Spanish Golden Age comedias, which were tragic comedies. Yeah. And there's a lot of comedy in our tragedies, yes. and especially in Macbeth. Especially, yeah. I mean, these are really funny, funny plays. They have great moments in them. And I think sometimes in performance today, there's a fear of having too much comedy in what we expect from a tragedy. And there are hysterical lines in Hamlet. Yeah. And and that was just part of it. It was yeah. played for an audience that expected the humor no matter what the outcome of the story was. I'm sure that's what kept them in the theater. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, they would have gone home. And also I'm thinking that this idea of the characterization of the uh, genre of the play is ruthlessly satirized by Shakespeare through the voice of Polonius mm. when he describes the tragical, historical, comical, you know, right. that wonderful and hilarious speech that he offers in the middle of Hamlet. And and that's a great example of a play that's extremely funny and, and pointed mm-hmm. and yet so gravely tragic right. as well. I want to go back to something you had mentioned before about Romeo as this, you know, somewhat comedic figure. I mean, yeah. he is the Petrarchan lover. Yeah. And that conceit would have been something that the early modern audience would have recognized. The sonnet form which begins the play was was basically a Petrarchan model and, mm. and was used, would be easily recognizable to people in the audience as something that you would write a sonnet to try to woo a woman to get her in bed with you. And mm-hmm. and, and it starts off um, in Act 1, or the prologue at the beginning of Act 1. And there is a sonnet prologue at the beginning of Act 2, which is often cut in performance mm. because it doesn't give any new information. But when the, the lovers meet and at the party, they form a sonnet together. Right. And they, they complete this rhyme, and after the rhyming couplet, they kiss, and then they start to begin another sonnet. Hmm. And so Romeo, in his language, moves from this Petrarchan lover 
and learns how to speak really from Juliet. And his mastery of language is something that really, it, you, could per, you could see this whole play as a progression of his mastery of language. And, and once he finally achieves it, he dies. <laughs> oh, well. But, um, but, but yes, he is funny. He comes in, oh, love, oh, brawling love. You know, and, he, and that's funny um, to the audience at the time and even to us now because he's that guy who's in love with love. Right. And even his friends are, come on, you know, um, come on. And she's like, don't swear by the inconstant moon. Like, don't you, come on, you know, have how to love. She's the one who brings up marriage. And, and, um, and so, yeah, it is kind of funny to watch this, this boy not know how to be a man. Right. And he becomes socialized during the play. There's wonderful clues in what you're saying, I think, for the actors in terms of, um, you know, how not to approach this too gravely or too tragically at the beginning, uh, how to make sure that this sense of um, youth and... Um, uh, not necessarily a lack of knowledge, but a lack of experience is really part and parcel of who these people are when they begin their journey. And, of course, famously, Juliet is only supposed to be 13. Yeah, about 13. Yeah, and I think that that's often a challenge for a young actress who are in their perhaps 20s uh, to figure out what that means. We hope they're in their 20s. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. it's 35 that's or right, 40. That's right, yeah. But, but also part of... I keep on going back to violence, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that comes up most... Elizabethan women would get married at 20, at mm-hmm. age 20 or even after that. So for Juliet to be married so young, not just by her own will to Romeo, but for her father to give her away at such a young age, hmm. um, was a bit of a violent act. Uh-huh. And knowing that Paris would have accepted his too young bride, even though we, Paris is just kind of this benign character as we see him, and he challenges Romeo in the end for good reason. He sees a Montague at the tomb and it was Romeo who had killed Tybalt, and so he has no reason to believe that Romeo is there for any reason, any reason other than to be disrespectful. But for Paris to accept that bride is is also an, an act of violence, if mm. you will, that there was something wrong with Juliet being promised to marry at such a young age. That would have read very wrongly then, I too. I see, I see. So uh, approximately 20 years old would have been the norm. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. So this opens the door, uh, Carla, for us to perhaps take a look at some of the um, theories that have been uh, developed over time around the play from the scholarly perspective. I did want to ask you about feminist theory and its response to Romeo and Juliet. Maybe, maybe you've just you know, uh, laid the foundation for, the, for your response. I'm not sure. But um, do you know of any uh, sort of feminist takes on the play and how it is that uh, it's been viewed through that lens? Well, that's really changed over time. And some of it has to do less with theory and I think more with acting methods. Okay. There were, in the 19th century, there were a lot of failed Romeos. And, and, and <laughs> Romeo began to be the part really played for, I mean, really played by women. There were a lot of female Romeos at the time because how the way that acting methods had changed, there were a lot of famous actors who didn't do well with the part. And then we, then we go through a series of actors where they shine. Uh-huh. And... Even when it comes to film, the George Cooker film in the 1930s was kind of the first full-length Romeo and Juliet. But you had, you had Norma Shearer and Leslie Howard who were in their 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. and a, I think a nearly 55-year-old John Barrymore's Mercutio was some of the geriatric version of Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> but, but this challenge of of how it's staged because of acting methods, because of famous actors, and so forth. But as for, there was a long time that people thought Juliet was just this, you know, 
girl and she didn't know what was going on and then she takes her own life and so forth. But Juliet is incredibly smart. And I think as people have examined the language even further, that we have a better understanding that Juliet is someone who who has an immense amount of knowledge and a quick wit and she takes things into her own hands and granted they don't produce a, a positive outcome that basically she is the language tutor for Romeo. Right. He learns from her. And part of that is that in this society, you had to be married to become socialized. And when Mercutio was killed, Romeo, who has tried to abstain from the fight, says, Juliet, thou hast made me effeminate. Huh. And and the friar also makes a similar comment. And, and that was because he... Romeo had turned down the battle that he was supposed to take as a gentleman. And in the end, when he's then being challenged by Paris, he's like, don't tempt me. But he goes ahead and fulfills his his role as a gentleman and accepts the duel. Mm-hmm. And so we have this type of terminology that's made people think Juliet's been a problem to Romeo. And I think there's been a reevaluation from a feminist perspective, but just a greater understanding of language mm. that and, and the society that he has become engaged. He mm. has become grown. He's become socialized. And part of that is is marriage and his own development. So, so Juliet, in this um, framing of the piece, is the catalyzing agent, in fact, of, of where the story goes and how the characters grow. It's not so much Romeo's youthful obsession with falling in love, but it's rather Juliet's decisions that actually take the two of them forward and through the story. I mean, she sends the nurse to inquire about marriage, Mm -hmm. you know, and she said, what time shall I send? You know, by the hour of nine, and she sends her nurse to find out Mm -hmm. about that, and and then it happens, and then once Mercutio and Tybalt have been killed, the nurse, she sends the nurse then to go to Friar Lawrence's cell to see what's happening. And the nurse says, my lady needs to see you. And they go and have their bedroom scene, their mm-hmm. wedding night. And then when Juliet realizes that she's being forced to marry Paris, she decides to go to see Friar Lawrence to find a solution. And so she's an active agent. Mm-hmm. We find the same thing, I think, in The Tempest with Miranda, that a lot of people will say she's just this girl on an island. and But she actually has a lot more wherewithal than I think people give that character credit for as well. Hmm. So um, in in understanding who she is in relation to the men around her. And as an Elizabethan author writing between 1590 and 1610 approximately, is Shakespeare unusual in that he creates so many um, leading female roles with this kind of agency? Or were his contemporaries also doing this in their own way? There, there are some contemporaries, and I think a little bit more towards the end of his career, that really take that on. And we find in, in Beaumont and Fletcher and, and so forth, there'll be some women there. There are some great plays, um, The Night of the Burning Pestle. Mm-hmm. Even uh, We don't see it so much in Johnson. We don't see women that, mm-hmm. that we, I agree with you there. Um, but we do, we do find some women who are doing some amazing things. I think one of, one of the reasons that, that Shakespeare is different compared to his contemporaries is his ability to adapt from previous stories and play up those certain parts. So, yes, uh-huh. he, he is quite different. Uh-huh. And, and I'm not sure if that's due to artistry, due to having wonderful young male boy actors who are apprentices who could take on these roles. And we see different types of clowns, for example. Once you have a change in the clown in 
inside um, Shakespeare's acting company. So once we go from Kemp to Armin, then we ha- we get a different type of fool. We mm-hmm. go from the fool in Two Gentlemen of Verona to Lear's fool mm-hmm. um, because of different skills of the actors themselves. Mm-hmm. So you would need someone who's musical, a young boy who can sing to, to play Desdemona. And you would need someone, you know, who's capable of certain things at different points. So I'm again with the, the question of biography and theater history is how much did it have to do with the people who were in the acting company right. um, as well as the artistry itself. And incidentally, do we, um, uh, do we think that Shakespeare played any of the roles in Romeo and Juliet? Is that something that we... In, in Romeo and Juliet, I don't think so. Okay. We, I, we don't have any record of that. Okay. So, although that would be quite fun. Yeah, <laughs> I don't I, know who he would be. No, maybe Friar Lawrence perhaps, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe Peter the Servant. <laughs> Can't read. Um, and the other um, theoretical approach to the play, which which definitely has caught my attention, um, and I've heard it framed by various people, both in conversation and also seen it written, uh, relates to queer theory and Mercutio's potentially homoerotic leanings towards Romeo. Do you pay much heed to that approach? Do you think that it has interesting value in uh, either in discussion or in performance? Absolutely. And it's one of the things we actually just talked about in my class when okay. we're reading Romeo and Juliet. And in this idea of, first, I really start with homosociality, which is mm-hmm. this bond of what we call brotherly love. Mm-hmm. And there were ceremonies for two men to say we're best friends forever type of thing that went on at this time. And this strong bond between men is something that we see in, in a number of these plays, in The Merchant of Venice, even in the bond between Hamlet and Horatio. And this tie between men was something, part of the fraternal order. So the question becomes, does Mercutio have homosexual feelings mm-hmm. for Romeo, or is it just this strong homosociality that once one of these young men becomes married, you lose some of that. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the, the danger, if you will, in The Merchant of Venice, right? Yeah. I mean, between Bassanio and Antonio. Antonio's fronting the money for Bassanio to get married, and once Bassanio gets married, no more room for Antonio. Right. And and that's part of the problem. And so in in years, when I was going through my, my earlier education, I was taught that this, this had to do with homosexuality, mm-hmm. that type of jealous or envy and so forth but that's not necessarily the case that it can simply have to do with a strong bond between men which we see in two gentlemen of verona and the two noble kinsmen as well so but in performance i i did see one quite exciting production at chicago shakespeare i think in 2010 in which all of the boys were fighting on stage during the quarrel scene and mercutio leaned in and grabbed Tibble and gave him a long, deep kiss. And all the other men fighting on stage just kind of stopped, hmm. looked disgusted. And then then the aggression came out from there because he had crossed another line. Oh, and it intensified the anger and the disdain. And um, I think that worked theatrically incredibly hmm. well. As Is it necessarily in the language? Hmm. No. No, it's not. But I, I do think that one of the things that we enjoy so much about Shakespeare is the liminality of the words and the openness of interpretation. And it certainly is is one of the ideas that has been helpful in a lot of production. Mm-hmm. Is the strength of the fraternal bond that you mention something that Shakespeare is critiquing in his work? Does it does it equate to a power structure that is unhelpful in society in his view? That's a really good question. I think the way that we see it played out is, no, it's not necessarily a critique, but the socialization that goes along with marriage is mm. at odds with it. Right. So we don't have that bond 
helpfully sustained once a man becomes married. Mm -hmm. And marriage was still something that was mandatory, that Mm -hmm. was going to happen. Um, and, And that, back to our question of biography, how Shakespeare, how happy he was in his marriage and what that does to friendships and so forth. But I... I don't think it's so much a critique as more of what does this mean? How is our society functioning when that's part of the whole youthful, that's part of the growth? And, mm-hmm. and as I said, young men in the working classes were in apprenticeships for a long period of time and now perhaps living in, in London or in different cities and you could work and raise your socioeconomic status, which was still a fairly new idea, mm-hmm. um, and being able to have that type of time in your youth and for men to marry in their late 20s and mm-hmm. for women to get married at 20, then all of a sudden the world changes. The expectation changes. And we see all this played out through Jane Austen. Yes. I mean, all, going all the way forward of there's this bachelor time and then once you're married, it's completely different. And the marriage part was inevitable. It's This is absolutely fascinating to me because on the one hand, <clears throat> perhaps we're suggesting that prior to marriage, there is a kind of a spiritual freedom, uh, potential for economic change, and uh, and a, a breadth of relationships that can be nurtured and developed. And then when marriage comes along, it narrows everything down and fixes it. And yet, it is a marriage that typically ends a comedy in Shakespeare's uh, authorship. And, in, you know, really in terms of the definition of comedy, that's often how it's how it's seen. So there must be something positive about it as well. And yet, is it romantic to complete one's journey through bonding with uh, uh, through bonding in marriage, or is marriage something that is in fact part of the social structure that you mentioned? None of these questions have finite answers, but I'm fascinated by this sort of brew that Shakespeare is approaching. Well, and I, yes, the definition of comedy really is in Shakespeare: nobody dies on stage, but, <laughs> and, and, and there are unions at the end, but those unions are questionable. I'm trying to think of the happy marriages in Shakespeare and. Um, and a lot That's of them, they they couple up at the end, and thankfully the curtain goes down. Right. And you're like, well, hmm, right. good luck about that, right? right? And and how's that going to end up afterwards? So yeah, yeah, I'm not quite sure. We don't have a lot of happily married couples. Right, I suppose so, not. Yeah, so yeah. everything that leads up to the anticipation of marriage might be very exciting, but once it actually happens, then we still get this in a lot of our our theater. And, and film and, and stories today. Yeah. It's a whole, you know, roller coaster, comedic journey yes. up until marriage, and then boom, it's over. I'm like, yeah. oh, that's not the end. That's just the beginning. Right, <laughs> don't, right. don't they know it's just starting from there? <laughs> and and it may not go smoothly, but we're enjoying that ride, and then there's this fixed point. Yeah. So, so um, I did want to address one other thing in the sort of nitty-gritty of the play. I, I once heard it stated that um, in any one of Shakespeare's plays, there is a key word, a single word that will that may be repeated many, many times, mm-hmm. which offers a kind of a window into the uh, into the play itself. In the, in the case of the Scottish play, Blood. In this play, I'd like to actually read a little bit um, because light is so very, very important in the language and the poetry of the play. So uh, Romeo describes Juliet as being like the sun, brighter than a torch, as a jewel sparkling in the night and a bright angel among dark clouds. And then even when she's supposedly dead in the tomb, he says that her beauty makes this vault a feasting presence full of light. And in the other direction, Juliet describes Romeo as day and night and whiter than snow upon a raven's back, and so on and so on. So light 
and its relationship to dark is such a vital part of this sort of undercurrent of language. Any thoughts on this, and what, what, what does this inspire in you in terms of your response? I think it's a lot of fun right. because we have all of these um, allegories and analogies that, that we, when we think of characters, we want to see them as, as whole people, as persons, and this idea of personation, as, as we call it in the mm. early modern period, is, is still a bit of a, a question mark in the sense that are, are some of these characters kind of strung together as, as messages of a Petrarchan love conceit mm-hmm. and the language used in it, or are they kind of whole people, which helps us perhaps on stage to understand them that way, but may not necessarily have been the case of the way they're constructed. Mm-hmm. What we have quite often in Romeo and Juliet is repetition, Mm -hmm. and we have a lot of oxymorons, from our fair Verona to our fatal loins, and Mm -hmm. loins should not be fatal, you know, they're there to, and so forth. We have a lot of this opposition of night and day and and light and dark, Mm -hmm. and what that does is is it can be comical in some cases, but also extend the tragedy that we keep on talking about our division, and that division between the two households is right there in a lot of the phrases, in the two-word phrases that we have throughout. So huh. this theme of division is actually present in a lot of those two-word phrases that we see all the characters delivering. And I think that that's, that's what gives us that theme. Huh. That's what builds on it and keeps that type of tension growing. So the, the light, the dark, the sun, and the moon, and and all of that, some of that comes from, from the sources, and it comes from Ovid, and it comes from poetry, and, and so forth, and plays into this whole Petrarchan idea and conceit. But at the same time, it's, it's bringing up this, this kind of youthful, how else do young people express themselves except for in this kind of wholly um, um, accentuated way. So it, to me, it, it extends the tragedy. Hmm. And, and sometimes when a few of those are cut, you know, yeah. in, in performance, like, ah, this isn't advancing the story. We need to move along. And, and you strike a few of those. It takes away from that repetition of the diametrically opposed forces um, or, or pictures and images that we have, mm-hmm. that it helps create that because this was performed in daylight. Mm-hmm. And so you have to bring up night and day and, mm-hmm. and so forth. And it it helped the audience create those images and create opposition at every turn, mm. create division at every turn. And that's one of the things that I think it does. It also does play on this um, when we think of, I mean, we still refer to a lot of people will say instead of the Middle Ages, they'll say it's the Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. And it plays off this idea of light versus dark and not being enlightened. And that that we, we're, we're in a post-enlightenment phase, but we still kind of pick up on that as brighter versus darker, and it has other connotations as well. As you describe this, I'm reminded of this continual question that that buzzes around my mind when dealing with Shakespeare, and that is, uh, and I'd like to ask you, to what extent was Shakespeare classically educated? Here's the Petrarchan sonnet that begins this piece, and so many of the the ways in which he um, is framing the language seem to have antecedents, and yet there is also this other current of sort of astonishing creativity, invention of words that never existed before, Mm -hmm. which don't seem to come from a formal education. So where do you see Shakespeare in terms of this whole classical versus, you know, just inner genius Mm -hmm. issue? I I think that that the question of could someone with his limited education have written these plays? Absolutely. Mm. 
was Shakespeare the sole author of the plays that were attributed to him? No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. And there's more and more very current research that's going to continue to show how much he collaborated with other people. But even looking at the sonnet sequence, one could see the playing with form. There's enough of the form maintained, but there's playing with it throughout that can view those almost as schoolboy lessons of playing with rhetoric, you know? So if you're asked to write something and here's, here is the standard form, how do you tweak it? Mm. You know, how do you play around with it? Maybe how do you do it wrong is, you know, part of that as well. And that some of this is that we credit Shakespeare with is his ability to pull from multiple sources and take the best parts of them. But that also, when, when I'm just said that, but when, when people say things like that, it's looking as, at Shakespeare as, quote, static. And Romeo and Juliet is one of, I believe, two plays along with Hamlet that has four quarto editions along with a folio, so the quarto being the small quarter size editions. And there are significant changes between the first quarto and the second quarto. Mm. And we get most of our texts are based on the second quarto, which for years was considered superior mm. and an improvement to what Q1 was. Q1 is known as the bad quarto. Right. right. Yeah. And so we have these terms, the good and the right. bad, right? right? The <laughs> Talk foul about. papers. And we have <laughs> look at what we're doing with our adjectives yes. here. And really, as we all know, as practitioners, things change. Mm -hmm. You stage it here, a year later you stage it there, or with different actors or on a different stage. But different things happen. And so some of it can be an artistic improvement of mm -hmm. things that worked, so that got a laugh, that didn't, that went on too long, i got to change that. Some of it might be the stationer's hand or the publisher or whatever it might be. But this was these scripts are changing without their fluid. And our copies that we purchase today have a whole bunch of choices in there mm. between choices made in the early modern period to editing choices today to, to all of those questions. And, and I think that, that part of it is we're still playing with the text. That's what we're doing. And, and our editors are still playing with it and our actors are still playing with it and our directors are too. Mm. So... To me, it's it's a matter of the mobility and the liminality of these texts that, that keep them open and fun. But I there wasn't, here's the one copy. We know he signed off on mm. it. This was the perfect thing and not to be touched again. I'm done. You know, that right. that's not something that we have. And that's true of all of his texts. Is that right? Yes. I mean, in, in some of them, we only have one copy. We only have something from the folio. We have something after that. But at the same time, just because it's the only one we have certainly mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's the only one that was out there. Right. And and I think that that someone of his education, I mean, his birth certificate was written in Latin. The death certificate was in English. And so you have the shift during Shakespeare's time of the dominant language. <laughs> he was still classically trained. And and he was someone who we have what we call the missing years of what he did, you know, between Stafford, but lived in London and worked as an actor. Yeah. And and even if he couldn't speak all the languages that we think he should be able to speak well in order to be able to gather from these sources, he was still in a literary heightened artistic period of, of time. Mm -hmm. And, for example, when we talk about Henry V, I... Um, there's a scene with the uh, French princess Kate and her and her dressing woman, and they speak in French. And oftentimes it's determined that the French isn't very good because Shakespeare didn't speak French well, so he couldn't write it well. But it can also be interpreted as these are savvy cues to actors who may not speak French uh -huh. as to how to speak French, okay? <laughs> they, they may not be correct French, but it's writing it for people who don't necessarily know how to speak French and for an audience who may probably entirely does not know how to speak French. So how is this scene going to come across? And 
it, as I said, is it just Shakespeare didn't know what he was doing or did he know very well what he was doing and needed to make sure that this was understandable to the audience and the actors at the time? So this, what you're emphasizing here, Shakespeare's um, adherence to sort of practical issues rather than any um, draw that he might have felt towards um, sort of high theory or conceptualizations of the time, reminds me of this wonderful piece that I read from Ted Hughes, um, who suggested that there is absolutely no way that Shakespeare could have been university educated, like Christopher Marlowe, for example, precisely because his plays are so accessible to common people. And the university wit tended to separate one from the masses and the populace. You know. Absolutely. And also, he was an actor. I mean, yes. he didn't go to university, but even if he had, he then joined the dregs of an acting company, which, <laughs> of course, they were later favored by the queen and then the king and so forth. That's great. But nonetheless, I mean, he was a working man. Yeah. And, and, got to, and from what we understand, not a great actor, you know? And right. so he got to see what worked and what didn't and how much staging concepts changed during his time period from the move to go indoors at the Blackfriars and what that could do to changing things for acts and what we get in the later romances, as we call them, we get some more special effects, you right. know, um, because right. of different things that were possible and a different audience that could pay a lot more and and there were by far fewer people in the theater. So, so I feel like there's an accommodation for all of that mm. that we don't get from from other types of drama at the time. Mm -hmm. It's not just the... Um, overlauding of Shakespeare because of his position and status in our society. But also, Marlowe's plays just don't give us that. Right. They give us an immense... We credit Marlowe with really mastering, you know, um, blank verse and, and, and so forth and a number of things, but, but we just don't get the same type of creativity for the stage. Yeah. Let me close, uh, Carla. By the way, I would say that I could go on talking about this all day because it's just endlessly fascinating. But let me close by asking you about your own research and as it relates to Shakespeare and what it is that you're focused on now and whether it has any specific relation to Romeo and Juliet. Oh, yes. I, I am working on turning my dissertation into a monograph, into my first book. And there I do speak a lot actually about Romeo and Juliet. I talk about Latino-themed Shakespeare productions, uh -huh. and I am the first person to write on them at all, starting from West Side Story and the way that Latino culture, Latinidad, is created on stage, linguistically, culturally, and so forth. But I take up Romeo and Juliet a lot in this specific context because it is the most performed in Latino-themed adaptations, um, mm. Romeo and Julietas, and one of the source texts for Shakespeare's is Romeo and Giulietta, Italian stories, and so forth. But um, why this text becomes so open to creating cultural divide. Mm -hmm. So, and, and what I, I termed the West Side Story effect <laughs> is the taking of any type of difference in Shakespeare, whether it's cultural, familial, linguistic, and changing it into cultural linguistic divide. Mm. And we see this not just in Romeo and Juliet's, but in stage productions in Measure for Measure today and Much Ado About Nothing. But it stems from the Romeo and Juliet mm. and why that happens and how it happens. Mm. So one of the things I've given a great deal of consideration to and that I devote to in my work is the near erasure of the Romeo killing Paris scene that we have in contemporary movies uh -huh. and in most contemporary stage productions and why that's disappeared and our ideas of, of Romeo as a lover, we don't want to see Romeo as a killer. And this, as, as we talked about briefly, 
wasn't a matter of him being aggressive as a killer. He was challenged as part of his role as a gentleman. But one of the reasons that that's gone away is we draw this difference between them. And um, and we even see, even in Shakespeare in Love, um, mm-hmm. which takes on the Romeo and Juliet story. So here we have a story of Shakespeare being told through the Romeo and Juliet tale. Mm-hmm. And there the Paris figure, who is Lord Wessex, becomes the most evil person in the story. And so... So anyway, so we have this kind of development and this separation of the lovers and, and the killers, mm. which wasn't necessarily the case at the time. But I, I'm looking to that as to why does that happen and how does this story of love, how has it actually become our modern tale of hate and division? Mm. And because that's quite often how it's played in contemporary performance. Mm. So it's that type of change over time that I look at. Good. We look forward to reading your book. Thank you. So, uh, Professor Carla Delegata, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, tune in next time uh, to podcast at SDA when we will be exploring Angels in America, uh, part one, Millennium Approaches, which will be produced at uh, the School of Dramatic Arts in the early spring. Podcast at SDA is a production of the USC School of Dramatic Arts. Your host is the Dean of the School of Dramatic Arts, David Bridell. Podcast at SDA is recorded, edited, and mixed by the students and faculty of the BFA Sound Design Program. Join us in two weeks for our next episode of Podcast at SDA.